listening to the New York Football Podcast with Tim McMaster and Dan Duggan. Hey everybody, welcome into another edition of the New York Football Podcast, our Giants pod here at The Athletic. Tim McMaster along with Dan Duggan. The 2020 NFL schedule is out. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to take a lot of your questions. Dan put out a Duggan Deep call to action on Twitter and lots of responses, so we'll get to that stuff as well. Make sure you rate and review us if you are listening somewhere where you can do that. And of course, you can save 40% off a subscription to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash the New York Football Podcast. Things aren't looking bright for the for the schedule as far as it goes, Dan. I know a lot of fans have weighed in um, on social media and not really expecting a lot from this team in 2020 when they saw this schedule. Before we break it in, get into it fully, though, um, desperate times call for desperate measures. Everybody's obviously at home. You're recording this at home. Uh, your wife's at home. Your kid's at home. So you're in the bathroom for this one. <laughs> yeah, so I'm in the bathroom. It might be a little bit more echoey than normal, but hopefully no other no other sounds uh, emerge from this recording. Got to find your, your quiet space in the house. All right, let's talk about this schedule, and we'll kind of go through it in chunks. And the first chunk is obviously the beginning um, and there's no easy part of this schedule. And if you're the Giants and you're a team that's struggled in recent years and doesn't have a huge increase in talent, you would think the struggle is going to be there anyway. But they don't open with Dallas. That's something they've done a <laughs> lot of recently. Instead, they get to host the Steelers on Monday Night Football. I was a little surprised that the Giants get Monday Night Football week one. Yeah, and like I said, not being down in, uh, in Dallas is the bigger surprise. But it's funny, you look at the uh, some of the – reporting that came out after the fact of the contingencies that are sort of baked into the schedule and there's definitely a chance that those first four weeks either get scrapped or moved around moved to the end of the season and then guess what week five they'd be at dallas so just <laughs> keep that one tucked away but yeah i mean monday night football um you know i don't think they've had a monday night opener i think it was 2014 i want to say was the last one they've had so it's, it's been a while um you know they have three primetime games you know the thursday night game which you know pretty much everyone gets and then uh two monday nighters but again, no Sunday night game. So, you know, I think uh, historically Monday night football is looked at as, you know, sort of the, the premier primetime slot, but uh, it's really changed. It's really Sunday night. That's where you get a lot of your best matchups. And the fact that they haven't been in those games the last two seasons, you know, really tells you how they're perceived because they're still going to get, you know, some national games. It's still, a, you know, a national brand and a huge market. So, um, you know, I'm sure that ESPN looked at it and say, well, listen, we put the Giants on Monday night football against the Steelers to start. Uh, we're going to get a pretty good rating. But I think it's probably more revealing that that they don't have any Sunday night games. I think that's where you're really going to put the, you know, the Patriots and the Chiefs and the, you know, the Tampa Bay. Now uh, those teams are going to be, you know, seeing the Sunday night spotlight more than uh, a team that's you know, struggled like the Giants have the last couple of years. Yeah, in week one, the Monday night, it's, of course, a doubleheader. They get the early game, the 7-15 start, and then there'll be the West Coast game as well. So this opening gauntlet, you have Steelers at home, then it's to Chicago to take on a Bears team. That'll be a nice challenge for Daniel Jones, certainly that defense. Then they're back home to take on the Niners. Now, normally, when a West Coast team like the Niners comes east, it's a pretty big advantage for the East Coast team. But unfortunately for the Giants, I would think the Niners will have been here for a week already because they play the Jets in New York in week two. And I would imagine they're not going to go back to the West Coast and torture themselves with that travel. So you would think the Niners will be pretty comfortable in their hotels here in New York by the time the Giants game comes in week three. Then it's at the Rams, so a West Coast trip, and then the Cowboys. So you look at those five games, there's no obvious win there, Dan. It could... 
I mean, it feels like a possibility of an 0-5 start, but if you have to pick one of those games that the, the Giants can break through with, which one is it? Uh, I mean, you know, Pittsburgh at home. I don't, you know, I don't yeah. think that's a unwinnable game. And then you're at Chicago the next week. I mean, they played, you know, right down to the wire with Chicago last year. And I think the Giants should be a little better than they were a year ago. So, I mean, they have to at least get one of those two because, you know, yep. you're looking at, like I said, a pretty tough slate after that. Um, and you just look at this team's history where they just continue to get off to slow starts the last couple of years. They started 0-2 six of the past seven seasons. And not surprisingly, they finished with a losing record in each of those six seasons. So, uh, have to find out, find a way to get off to, um, you know, a reasonably quick start, or at least just not dig themselves such a huge hole that I mean, the last couple of years they've been out of the playoff contention by Halloween. Like, let's at least get into Thanksgiving and, and yeah. maybe even Christmas if we're really lucky, where games still matter. Um, you know, zero and two becomes you know one and nine really quickly for this team in the last couple of years. So they need to find a way to to, to steal a win or two there early. Because like I said, that's, that's a tough slate, and then you know you're home against Washington where I think that's the game if you're going to really you know, put your money down. I think that might be the only game they're favored in some of the early lines I've seen. Um, so, you know, if you can get to that point and be 2-3 and three instead of 0-5, oh you know, you at least give yourself uh, a fighting chance going into that, that stretch there where uh, there's a ton of NFC East games in, in the middle of the schedule. Yeah, that Cowboys game kicks off a stretch of five division games in six weeks. So it's at Dallas, uh, then back home for the Redskins, then at Philadelphia. That's the Thursday night game. And then they're home to take on Tom Brady and the Buccaneers on Monday night football. So there's a nice, it's almost like a mini bye week in there. You go from Thursday night football to the Monday night football game the next week. That's a nice uh, stretch. Of course, Tampa Bay was Jones's first start back in 2019. Then it's at the Redskins uh, three weeks after hosting the Redskins and then back home for the Eagles. So really a big chunk of that division stretch right there heading into the bye week. And it's a, a stretch where even if you're struggling overall, I think if you can put together some wins within the division, at least there's some there's some little victories there, I think, as far as um, the mental state of this team, if they're doing okay in those division games. Yeah, and we saw last year. I mean, this division uh, you know, came right down to the wire with teams that were fighting to get over 500. So you know, coaches always say it. It's sort of like one of those kind of cliches you hear a lot in the NFL, but it's really true. You really have to worry about your division first. Obviously, you're playing those teams um, you know, six times in total, but you can go get, you know, smacked by the, you know, the teams in the AFC or the Bucks or the 49ers. If you can just hold serve in your division, you're going to give yourself a fighting chance. And that's again, same as the slow starts. Put it this way, when you're bad, you have a lot of bad trends. So the slow starts have been a trend and then just getting owned in the NFC East has been a trend too. So they, they need to find a way to reverse that. That's one that they can't recover from. If they, if they have another, you know, two and four, one and five, uh, season in the NFC East, they're not going to be even sniffing the playoffs. They need to find a way to get competitive there where, you know, the Eagles have owned them forever. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how long that streak has gone on. And the Cowboys have had their number pretty well too. So uh, just stealing one or two from the Redskins every year isn't, isn't nearly enough. So that that's an absolute make or break stretch. Because even as, as tough as those first four or five weeks are that we talked about, if they can tread water and then make some hay when you're playing, you know, Washington and Philly twice in like a four-week span each and they got Dallas – um, you, you string some wins together there, then again, like the, those early games against the Steelers don't really end up probably mattering that much because you're going to be in a dogfight for the division if, uh, you know, if everyone's just kind of beating up on themselves. So uh, again, we saw that last year where, I mean, the division was really tooth and nail to the end and the Giants weren't even, you know, remotely in the picture. So they need to, you know, make some hay in, in that middle season stretch there where 
uh, at least coming down the stretch, they, they can be in the hunt and give themselves a chance. But if, if they you know have a losing streak in that five or six game stretch, I mean, forget about it because they're going to put themselves you know so far behind when you're talking about division games. So that brings them into the bye week, and then the, you know you rest up, and then things. I don't want to say ease up. There's still some tough games in that second half of the season, but there's some more games where I would think when you're going into these games, the lines at least will be a little more reasonable. You're at the Bengals uh, in week 12. So it's obviously a new look Bengals team. They've, they've got Joe Burrow. They've made a lot of changes this off season. They're probably going to be better than they were a year ago uh, when they were obviously worse than the Giants. But you would think that's a game that is winnable, at least, even on the road. Then it's at Seattle, so back-to-back tough road games. But then the Cardinals at home, who knows how far they've gone, and then Browns at home. So there's a stretch there after the bye week before you then finish up with at the Ravens and the Cowboys, where if the Giants are still, I guess, in the game mentally and still um, fighting hard, obviously in a first year with the new head coach, then I think they can pick up some wins there down the stretch. Yeah, and, and that's obviously we have to concede the, the kind of the folly of trying to predict these games so far out because it's really hard to project, you know, year to year. You know, because certain teams are going to rise, certain teams are going to fall. So you look at that that back half of the schedule, and it definitely looks a, a bit lighter. But who knows? Maybe Joe Burrow just comes in and lights the world on fire, or uh, you know, Arizona has certainly um, you know made some improvements getting DeAndre Hopkins, and uh, you know, I think you expect Calamari to probably make a big jump in year two. Um, but yeah, that definitely, if you're looking at it. It stands out as, if they, you know, again, treading water. When no one's expecting to go out and rip off like 8 out of 10 to start the season. But just be hanging around 500, game or two either way. It just will give us some games in November and December that mean something. And, and listen, I kind of, I'm disappointed they put that Cleveland game so late in the season. Because, you know, two things there. Either team could sort of be out of it. That'll lose a lot of the sizzle. Or, you know, you have to comfort the fact that Odell's had some injury issues in the past couple of years. So, uh, you want to see him playing. I mean, that, that would be a much more fun game if it was earlier in the season with a big spotlight on it. Because, again, by week, you know, what is that, 15, uh, it might not mean quite as much. I mean, I'm sure that week it'll mean a lot for, for the people involved. But in terms of the, the national scene, I don't know that there'll be a ton of interest if you're talking about, you know, like two six and eight teams uh, squaring off at that point. But, uh, you know, that, that that's definitely going to be a fun game. Um, you know, you know he'll be highly motivated to, uh, to return to his old stomping grounds. And then, you know, that game against Dallas at the end of the year. Again, you hope that that's a game that's, you know, fighting for the division or a wild card spot. But, you know, realistically, uh, you know, those those week 17 games have been more about draft position in the last couple of years. And you, again, you just you just hope that they can be competitive, be in the mix, have games matter in December. Because uh, it's really been, you know, what's in 2016. It's been a while since, since they've been in that position where, you look at a division matchup with the Cowboys in week 17 and think that, Hey, that might actually have something riding on it. So you'd like to at least see them, uh, you know, get back in a position where, where these games mean something down the stretch. It feels like last year, or you hope so if you're a Giants fan, right? Last year, you kind of, the last two years bottoming out, getting those high draft picks. And then you're, you're fueled up. Now you have the running back, you have the quarterback, you got your left tackle. Now you're, you're set to start making progress. So 2020, you want to see Daniel Jones go forward. We see so many quarterbacks in year two. It's kind of the year you, you like to see that. Sometimes Baker Mayfield took steps back last year. Um, there's so many things that I think are going to be key for 2020 to see where this team is 
headed long term um, that maybe the record, I mean, if you go into it, if you're a fan and you go into the season thinking, all right, you know, we're going to win four games, we're going to win three games. Maybe the mindset needs to just be, okay. so let's let's look at the little battles. Let's see how this team progresses. Let's see if we have our legitimate quarterback of the future. Let's see how the weapons develop. And, And it's those little things. And there's still reason to pay attention, even if the scoreboard isn't necessarily going your way. And I know your prediction, Dan, five and 11. Um, are you confident in five wins or do you think that could, could be lower? Oh man, if it's lower, that, that's, <laughs> that, that'd be tough. Um, you know, it's funny cause I feel like bef- you know, the funny thing about the schedule recently in the NFL is, you know, who they're playing from, you know, the right. week 17 ends the previous season. So, you know, I felt there was some optimism from the fan base. Like, Oh, we could win seven, eight games. You know, Joe judge ready to run through a wall for this guy. And then the order of the games comes out and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh my God, they're going to get Trevor Lawrence. So it's kind of funny because again, you knew who they were going to play. So some, for some reason, the order, like we said, it's a little bit of a, a tough start, or maybe you just kind of see it on paper. Like, oh, that, that's going to be a tough game. Oh, that's going to be a tough game. Like you said, there's not a lot of wins. You're just checking off um, if you're the Giants. But you know, I, I put a poll out, which I, I thought was interesting to gauge, you know, where the you know optimism, pessimism lined up. And I, I gave, you only get four options. So, um, you know, I, I did four or less, five or six, seven to nine, and 10 or more. So not surprisingly, four or less, you know, got 13% of the vote and 10 or more got 5% of the vote. So I think those are, you know, the two outliers, either you're super pessimistic or super optimistic. But I thought it was interesting that five to six wins got 46% of the vote and seven to nine got 36%. So more people are still leaning, I would say on that pessimistic side. I think the feeling, you know, from the fan base or from, you know, for myself, it's like they have to prove it because, I think people every offseason buy in. It's, it's really amazing to see. You go on Twitter, you check a message board, and it's like everybody thinks their team is going to be so much better. Even if the last year was a disaster, there's, you can come up with a million excuses, whether it's a new coach or you know draft picks or free agents. Everyone always going to believe the team is going to be better, and then they're not. And then you, know, you get so down in December and January, but then April rolls around and you're feeling great again. So I think people you know, in the Giants nation are just kind of tired of that game, of, of kind of lying to themselves in the offseason, and, and they really want to just kind of you know, put up or shut up. So I don't think people are getting carried away with, you know, this team can win nine or ten games this year. I think people are looking for progress. And I, and I would say, like, if they get five or six wins, I mean, that's really sort of – it's hard to, to really pin your hat on, on much progress there. I know people say, well, let's see how the games play out and stuff. But, I mean, I feel like we kind of fell into that trap in Shermer's first season with all the, you know, quote-unquote close losses. Like – they need to start finding a way to get some wins together. I, mean, I think anything more than six, if they get to seven wins, and obviously anything beyond that, but if they get to seven wins, you can say, oh, wow. Like Daniel Jones presumably made some strides. The defense presumably made some strides. Joe Judge presumably showed that you know he's capable of being a head coach. And then you're going to just fill in some pieces to get from seven wins to nine to 10, you know, whatever. But if they're at five and six again, it'll just feel like they made all these changes this offseason and they're still just kind of right back where they've been the last couple of years. So... Um, I think that that's you got to get over six wins. I really think. I mean, it's been great having all these top ten picks. Well, at some point they got to produce. They got to you got to you know, you know, bear the the fruits of uh, of the struggles they got to get into those positions. You don't want to have another top ten pick. I mean, GMs don't usually get to make four straight top ten picks. At least I can't think of too many off the top of my head. Uh, so if they're in that position again, uh, I think it's going to you know really be sort of a gloomy outlook uh, on the franchise because we've talked about how good these drafts have been. Well, you know, guys are coming into years two and years three here. They got to show it on the field. Um, so again, tough schedule. Whatever you want to say, I think I think six wins is sort of the over under of where this team goes. If it's six or less, I think it's hard to get too excited. If it's seven or more, I think okay, now we're really making some strides. If six is probably the magic number. If they get to six, I think that'll be a, a tough thing. And then maybe we'll have to just 
you know, judge based on how the games actually played out or if, you know, if they were in every game and, and got a couple of bad bounces, but anything less than six, I think it's going to be a real, real tough pill to swallow because there is, again, feels like some optimism building, but then I put that pull out there and, and you see maybe, maybe, maybe not so much. I think people in the heart of hearts, uh, you know, like I said, they kind of have to have, have it proven to them. They're, they're not just buying in for the sake of buying in because of kind of their, their hearts broken the last couple of years. Well, one problem I think it's the team's going to face also is with the new coaching staff and the situation we're in now where nobody's out on the field practicing. There's no off-season right now for a team that's trying to get things in place. I think there's a definite advantage in 2020 for teams that have had the same staffs in place and have had that continuity because I just think it's going to be a smoother transition once teams get back. So that's certainly something the Giants – I don't think Joe Judge is by in any means going to use that as an excuse – but it's definitely going to be a factor. Right. And like you said, he won't use an excuse. He'll, he's trying to like spin it somehow as an advantage that they're young and they're going to be uh, better at the virtual stuff or that, um, you know, he wants a challenge and he's going to sit there and say, well, I'll just do better at what I do than, you know, Andy Reid does what he does. It's probably not realistic in year one, but the reason why Joe Judge got this job at 38 years old is because he has that much confidence in himself. And listen, maybe he is going to be the next wonder kid and we're like wow we really we should have seen this coming this guys because he has knocked everything out of the park to date i will say that i mean he has been very impressive in terms of um you know just his media stuff which is you know whatever the, whatever that's worth but i think it's also that's just how he operates when you see him in an interview it's not like there's a different guy behind the scenes that he's just a very type a um type of guy who's you know checking every box and and dotting the i's and crossing the t's i mean that comes across i think that's how he's going to be as a coach um, so, you know, maybe he'll, he'll be able to just master this off season. That's pretty, you know, pretty unprecedented maybe, but I would rather be in the Chiefs situation with a very talented roster. Who's going to return pretty much all their starters for the most part, have the same coordinators, have the same system you run for years. I, I think it's hard to argue that that's a pretty big advantage. And, you know, I'd be surprised if teams that are kind of thrown together with a lot of new pieces and new coaches, if they somehow hit the ground running, I mean, at some point I'm going to have to go back and look at the uh, 2011 season to, to measure up how, how what was the crossover from from year to year because I think we you know I touched on earlier a lot of times in the NFL there is a lot of moving pieces teams will go from worst to first and, and vice versa but I'm curious if that offseason with you know with the lockout really doing basically what's happened this offseason if there was less of that because again uh it, you know it's a lot harder for teams to make substantial improvements when you have such a limited time on the field I mean you think back to the 2011 season uh, the Giants team that won the Super Bowl that year, that was a pretty veteran team. Uh, obviously, had been together uh, for quite a while. Tom Coughlin, Eli Manning, uh, the, you know, the core pieces. So uh, even that anecdotally, it, it seems to suggest that teams that have been established um, are going to have a pretty significant advantage. Dan, did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? I did not know that. How's that for a transition? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, 
efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com, enter the promo code FOOTBALL at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code FOOTBALL for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code FOOTBALL. All right, let's move on to Dug In Deep. So we have some good ones that came in via Twitter. Uh, We're going to start with Dan Fry, Dan. And this one says... After the past few seasons, six or seven wins seems like an improvement. We just kind of talked about that a little bit. But is that enough to save Dave Gettleman's job? And how tied would you say he and Judge are at this point? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's the one that's going to be hanging over a lot this season. And it goes back to, I I know we've talked about in the podcast, I know it's it's a big topic at the end of the season, the idea of having uh, a GM and a coach sort of on different tracks because you know John Mara got up there before Joe Judge was basically a twinkle in his eye and, and basically put Dave uh, Gettleman uh, you know on notice like the batting average has to improve and you know, he wasn't ever going to say you got to win seven games and that'll that'll you know get you some job security but the the implication was you know four or five wins isn't going to cut it so uh, I wouldn't say him and Judge are on the same track at all because I mean if Joe Judge gets five wins he's not going to get fired if the Giants have five wins Dave Gettleman very well could. Um, what the magic number is, is, you know, again, as we talked about earlier, it's it's going to be hard to say. Like I, I just look at myself. If I'm John Mara and I have to get up there next January 4th or whatever the day after the finale is, and, and we've gone 4-12 and 12 again, how can I possibly sell to my fan base that's obviously, as we've discussed, is, is getting pretty disenfranchised with, with how things have been going and say, all right, I know Dave has won 13 games in three seasons, but he's the right guy. Like at some point, it just becomes impossible to sell that to the fans. You might be able to talk about young guys and cap or whatever. It's a bottom line business, so you just you can't do it. Like at least if they get to again six is a hard number. If they get to seven, you'll say, listen, you know, got rid of Shermer. You have to kind of clean house in the locker room. But we went, we added three wins with a first time head coach and a young quarterback. It would be hard to argue that the arrow is doing anything but pointing up. And so that way, I think Gettleman, you have to give him another shot because clearly they believe in him. I mean, they would have fired him with Shermer if they didn't believe in him. They want him to succeed. They want him to be the guy. So if it's seven wins, I, I think he'd be back because, again, you're you're acknowledging that it's a build. And if you make a three-win jump and it, you know, it doesn't feel as phony as that, that jump they had from 2017 to 2018 when – um, you know, everyone got hurt in 2017 and the locker room, you know, completely combusted and they went from three wins to five. If you go from four to seven with, again, with a new coach and a young quarterback, I think you'd say there's some gen- like genuine reason to believe that things are heading in the right direction. So I, I really think seven is probably the cutoff for Gettleman. Again, six is is such a gray area to me. Maybe he gets a little bit of a pass for the the whole unprecedented nature of this offseason, whereas like, well, listen, I mean, it's really hard to judge. You know, we, we didn't have a full... Um, you know, off-season program to, to really get a new system. You know, we were kind of playing handicapped from from get go, from the jump. Like I said, you know, I think a lot of these teams that have new coaches and, and young players are going to be at disadvantage. So does that, you know, does this curve change a little for Gettleman when you factor that in? I, I don't know. I mean, I think the one thing that's in like the back of my head, and, and this is a podcast, so I'll just kind of like, you know, let, let some of my thoughts, you know, kind of ooze out here. I wouldn't really put it in a story necessarily. It feels like there's sort of a succession plan, like kind of in the works. I don't want to get like too far ahead of it because this isn't based on reporting. It's just based on kind of common sense that, you know, Gettleman's getting up there. Uh, I don't think he's a guy who's, you know, going to be doing this job when he's 80, even if he'd want to. I think that, you know, he was always sort of looked at as a, a short-term guy. And Kevin Abrams is just 
sitting there in the number two seat. And he's been in the number two seat for a long time. And we know how much this franchise likes to, you know, stay within the family for lack of a better term. So if they get like six wins and you can kind of say like Gettleman has it going in the right direction, would that be the time to maybe exit stage left and, you know, get into a consulting role and spend more time with your family? And hey, Kevin Abrams has been here for this little turnaround. Let, let's let him take over. And, you know, Judge is going to have a big say in personnel. So maybe that would be sort of an amenable agreement for, you know, granted we didn't win 10 games this year, but we have some pieces that we think can build. That, I just, that thought's in the back of my head, you know, because if they, if they go three and 13, Gettleman gets fired, but you can't promote Kevin Abrams. You can't say this guy's been the number two behind this nosedive the franchise has been on the last decade. So th- it can't be that situation. But if, if they just start to show a little progress, maybe that's the time uh, for Gettleman to step aside and it's an easy transition to kind of hand the baton off to Abrams. So again, I'm just sort of uh, spitballing, but I know it's out there. I know a lot of fans, have, they noticed the fact that Abrams was on a conference call uh, after free agency. The Giants said, you know, that was really just to add another voice. And Abrams, you know, for his part, he really only talked about contract stuff and logistics, which is, you know, sort of his bread and butter. But they've clearly been grooming him in some capacity. He's done more football evaluations, whereas his background is as a cap guy. He's not just a cap guy anymore. So clearly they, he has some ambitions and they like what they've seen. They obviously see a potential for him to, to grow into that role. So again, this is just me from just being around sports for a while and, and just sort of, you know, reading tea leaves. It wouldn't... Sh- Shock me at all if Dave Gettleman just kind of steps aside and get fired, doesn't, you know, quit. It's just like, well, you know, Dave's going to transition into, you know, a, you know, sort of, uh, you know, liaison type role at the front office and be there as like a sounding board, but he's not going to be the day to day guy. We're going to let, you know, Kevin grow into that role. And then, you know, Kevin and Joe Judge are both pretty young guys. They could conceivably be the, the future of the Giants for 20 years, obviously, if things go well. But that's just me. Uh, speculating, but to the, to the nature of the question, I, I, again, I think anything less than six wins, just really hard if I'm John Merritt to justify bringing Gettleman back. So I think, um, you know, there's definitely some pressure there where uh, they need to see some tangible results to justify bringing him back. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And despite what we've seen in recent years, we know that historically this Giants ownership group does not like to make changes in firing. So being able to have Gettleman just kind of move on and, and step up into another role makes a whole lot of sense. All right. Next one's from Joe Smith. Um, and this is kind of a this year versus long-term question. Which do you think would be better for the Giants? Starting Thomas at left tackle this year, so next year he has a year of experience at that spot, or starting him at right tackle so he has more help from Zeitler as a rookie and then he could move to left tackle. Yeah, this is something I'm, I'm probably going to dive back in more historically because I feel like a lot of times when tackles get picked in the first round, they do tend to start on the right side and then move over to the left side either in year two or, or maybe a little later in their careers. It just seems like maybe that's a, an easier jump to make. I, I, Solder did it himself. And he was the first round pick in New England. I believe it was Matt Light they had there who was a longtime left tackle. Solder started at right tackle as a rookie and then shifted to the left side. Obviously sounds a lot you know like the situation that you know could unfold here. I do also understand the school of thought that it's a short offseason. Thomas has played left tackle the last two years. Do you want to mess with the rookie? Whereas, you know, Solder's a veteran, maybe the transition would be a little easier. You can kind of go back and forth the pros and cons of that because at the same time, Solder's played left tackle for the last, you know, eight or nine years, whatever it's been. So would it be a bigger transition for him? So I think you have to decide, you know, what's best for the 2020 team and also the future. That's, you know, obviously the balance. They're always weighing. Uh, but the fact that Thomas played right tackle just a couple years ago as a freshman at Georgia – I think I'd be inclined to go that way. And as, as uh, Joe mentioned in the question, you, you put him next to Kevin Zeitler. I just like the idea of that a little bit because you got a rookie against who, you know, who gets to play right next to a very solid veteran right guard. 
Whereas you put him on the left side. I think we talked about this. Um, you put in Mr. Hernandez, who is a young guy, isn't someone who is ever going to get described as like a coach on the field. Like he's had his struggles with some of the mental aspects of the game, with picking up stunts and, and all that type of thing. Um, so then you got a very young left side, um, you know, and then that's that's obviously a very valuable position because you're, you're protecting Daniel Jones's blind side. So I think it makes a little bit more sense to start Thomas on the right side. I think we all know this is Nate Solder's last year here. So let him, you know, just stay where he's been at left tackle. Hope he gets, you know, back to like league average level play. Because the other thing too is Thomas was the fourth pick. Thomas is going to have a great future. He's going to struggle this year. Like offensive tackles in year one, it's usually a struggle. Not very many offensive tackles come in and become pro bowlers in year one. So the idea that he'll be an instant upgrade to Nate Solder, maybe. And, and like certainly you would think in, you know, five years from now, you'll look back and say, well, Aaron Thomas is worlds better than Nate Solder was in his last couple of years with the Giants. But I don't know that you can guarantee that like, well, he'll be so much better at left tackle. It's a jump for these guys. I don't care if you're playing the SEC or wherever you play. It's going to be, um, you know, a bit of a, a transition for Thomas. I mean, you look at the pass rushers uh, on this schedule and it's a, it's a pretty fearsome group. So I, I think he's definitely going to have some rookie growing pains as, as any offensive tackle does. So maybe the tackle, maybe the right side is a little easier transition for year one. You let Nate Solder walk after the season. Then you move, you know, Thomas back to the left side next year give him the full off season. And then you just say, listen, go be our left tackle for 10 years. But I don't think it would be any sort of, you know, setback for him to start out on the right side this year, kind of keep a little continuity with Solder and Hernandez together for another year. And then again, make the change full time uh, next off season. All right. Next question from comes from Mike Jennings. He wants to know, do they take a flyer on Justin Britt as a solution at center? Yeah, I mean, he'd make a lot of sense because we've detailed on this podcast that center is, is really the glaring weakness that really remains on this team. Um, but with anything right now, it's going to come down to price tag because the, the Giants aren't going to look to spend you know $8 million on a, on a one-year deal for a guy who is you know <clears throat> definitely going to be in a prove-it type situation. But that being said, anybody who's still available right now is not going to command big bucks. I mean, I think a guy like even Jadavian Clowney is you know coming to that painful realization. And it's even worse this offseason because as time goes on, I think the owners are going to start to look at the bottom line and say, we're going to lose some money this year, maybe a lot of money. And, and how's that going to impact the salary cap going forward? So I, I don't think there's going to be many, many lucrative deals to be had at this point. So you maybe get a bargain. And typically you look at guys who are veterans, you say, maybe he wants to go to contender. I think Britt's in a pretty unique situation because towards ACL last season, um, from everything I've heard, I think he's a guy who, you know, is kind of a workout maniac and he'll be ready to go for training camp. But he's not going to get a starting job or a chance for a starting job too many places. So if he's going to go sign a one-year deal somewhere to be a backup, that doesn't really help him. It's not going to boost his value to prove that he's healthy, to prove that he can still play. If you go to the Giants and you're looking at a depth chart of, you know, Spencer Pulley, maybe John Jalapio, and a bunch of young guys who have never played the position, that might be the best scenario he could step into because he can come in and just win the starting job outright from day one. I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I talked to, you know, an NFL guy who was saying, like, is he, is he still like a great player? No, probably not. But is he better than Spencer Pulley? By a lot. So it would be a chance for him to come in. You know, it's a, he would not be a long-term solution, you know, most likely. But he's, you know, he's 28 years old. He wants to get one more contract, maybe. This could be his best scenario to come in, make three, four million dollars, start 16 games, show you're healthy, show you can play at a high level, and then go cash in somewhere. And maybe it is the Giants. Maybe, if, you know, things go great. But I don't know, it's, I, I rule out a lot of these prove-it guys for the Giants. I don't think it makes sense, like, you know, Clowney or, or even Logan Ryan. I think guys like that are going to still want a little bit more money than the Giants would want to pay. And I don't think it makes sense to load up on one-year guys 
when you're not close to being you know one player away so what will be the point of making that investment but at that position which is very important how weak that position is and the fact that i think the price tag shouldn't be that high for a guy who's injured i think it makes a lot of sense so i mean i've kind of tried to poke around i haven't really heard much i think you're not going to hear much because he is recovering from a torn acl so as we've seen uh the medical aspect of all these restrictions it's really kept any guy with injury questions kind of on ice so i would think he'd be a guy you're not going to hear about seriously anywhere giants or elsewhere until we get closer to you know facilities being open physicals being conducted and he'd probably have to take some visits and actually prove to teams you know where his knee is at that yeah he'll be ready for camp he'll be ready for the season whatever it may be um but i think that's a guy if i'm the giants that absolutely keep tabs on and i do think you know a lot of times fans say well it'd be great to have Jordan Clowney on a one-year deal like well, why would you even Clowney want to come here i think for Britt, it might actually make sense i think it could be a match uh, again not saying that based on anything i've you know heard uh, specifically but just you know looking at the situation he might not get a better opportunity to come in somewhere and start and rebuild his value for a year. The rush to get physicals done is going to be fascinating when yeah. this all goes away and, and players are allowed to do it. All right, next question is from uh, We Own the Night. He says, any info on Marcus Golden or any other free agent signings still to come? Yeah, so I mean, like I said, I don't think you know there's going to be any big splashes uh, at this point. I mean, the Giants, I want to say after the draft pass, they have you know, give or take $10 million in cap space. So that's pretty tight. And, you know, they don't want to spend every last dime. As Gettleman has said many times, he wants to have, um, you know, some money hanging around if they need to make some in-season either trades or give an extension to, a, you know, a guy like Engram or Tomlinson or one of those guys who would be eligible. Um, so I, I, if I'm in their shoes, you know, I don't think that they're looking to, you know, go out and make some sort of splash signing. But, of course, Marcus Golden is sort of in that interesting uh, dynamic here where they put that very little used, um, May 5th tender on him where they have him locked in at a rate. You know, he can certainly go out and beat it. And he has until, I think it's July 15th to go out and he's a, totally a free agent. He can go get paid by anybody, uh, July 22nd, sorry. He can go and get paid by anybody, any amount of money. But by the Giants locking that tender in, if he doesn't sign anywhere but July 22nd, he can only uh, negotiate with them. And right now that tender is uh, a little bit more than he made last year. I think it'd be like $4 million. And then he still has a chance to make another million in incentives. So the Giants basically have said, we're comfortable paying Marcus Golden $5 million to come back. And he obviously wants more than that, you know, but he hasn't been able to find what he was looking for at the start of free agency, as we said. And you do look around and nobody after the draft here has, you know, cashed in. There hasn't been any rush on these veteran guys. I, I think teams are really kind of pinching pennies at this point. Um, so it, it becomes, as time goes on, it becomes more and more likely Golden may end up back here. And it was, you know, it was a shrewd move by the Giants to do that because it's, it's like I said, it's a very little used thing. And it really uh, typically is done for comp pick purposes. But the Giants aren't getting any comp picks this year because they spent so much money on Bradbury and Blake Martinez. So wherever Golden signed elsewhere, they weren't going to somehow get a comp pick back. But what it does do is it might make a team hesitant to sign Golden because it could impact their comp pick formula. So let's just say I'm the, the Cowboys and I'm do a fourth round comp pick or whoever. If I sign Marcus Golden to a $5 million deal, I might lose that fourth round pick. So that might be the the sort of determining factor of like, well, maybe we don't need Marcus Golden. I'd rather have that fourth round pick. And, and that's what using that tender did because um, the date that they, they, they used it on him, that was the deadline. After that point, guys don't factor into the comp pick formula at all. So it was, again, it was a shrewd move. It was definitely, I, I want to say a, a New England infused idea from Joe Judge because the last time anyone's heard of it being used was on LeGarrette Blunt uh, a few years ago. 
And he did still sign with Philly, so it doesn't in any way guarantee the guy will return, and, and it might lead to some some hard feelings because uh, you're basically putting a cap on his value or at least making it a little bit harder for him to sign elsewhere because he's not totally free. But at the end of the day, maybe $5 million or four, 4 to $5 million for one year might be the best he can do because it's just been very quiet on him. Um, and it's tough because I, I feel bad for him. He's a great guy. He came here, signed a one-year prove-it deal, had 10 sacks, so you know he, he proved it. And then he just he hasn't been able to find the market that, that he was looking for. So if he has to come back and have another prove-it deal, uh, yeah, that's tough because these guys, their their earning power is limited. You know, there's only so many years, and he'd have to go have another 10 sack season. And then he's gonna be another year older. So uh, he he sort of feels like he missed his window, which which is tough. But um, for the Giants' sake, it might work out because if you can get him back here at four million dollars, you know, that's a bargain, and and you give that that pass rush that you know we've been talking all offseason looks pretty weak, uh, a, a pretty good jolt. So. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that does play out. I mean, we've got about two months, so there's plenty of time, and um, you know, teams might you know be waiting and you know, kind of like lying in the weeds to, to see what uh, what interest comes for Golden. Uh, but the Giants definitely have left that that door ajar, and uh, he might not have any other option but to return. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and and obviously two months is a lot of times, and things are probably going to change a lot in this country between now and then. We certainly hope things are going to change. A lot. All right. Last one's from Eric Stackle. He says, how short a leash will DeAndre Baker have if he struggles again this season? Yeah, this is going to be really interesting because it's funny. I, I kind of got in, not got into it with somebody on Twitter, but I just keep seeing this, this notion that DeAndre Baker like had a significant turnaround at the second half of last season. And I just feel like, I mean, I go to all the games. I, I you know, I'm not on Twitter too much during the games. I feel like I'm paying attention and I just didn't see it. I mean, he played better. Like, don't get me wrong. He played better. But it was it wasn't good. There was nothing that was like encouraging about me. He had like a good game. I want to say is the Philly game down there um, where I, he did play well. But I feel like what happened with Baker is there was like the sort of PFF stats that went around and you know said he was so great in the last four or five games and and I just didn't think that matched up with reality, which I think is the case sometimes with PFF where they're, they're grading things strictly on metrics and stuff. But I mean, if you just go back and you know he had the Jets game where you know he just blatantly loafed um, on a, on a uh, receivers run away from him and that wasn't a one-time deal but it got really spotlighted and, and he got chewed out and, you know, I don't know if he got fined but it did not sit well with the coaching staff and so then the next week he comes back and he's splitting reps with with Sam Beal and um, he did that for the next couple of games so he might have played a little better I mean I'm trying to think of who those games were against I know I think one was Chicago where uh, everyone in that secondary kind of uh, struggled I think it was Corey Ballantyne had a nightmare game in the slot so there wasn't quite as much happening on, on Baker and then the game for that was, the, I believe, the home game against the Packers, where uh, I think that's one of the games that PFF said he had a great game. Twice in that game, he got yanked mid-series because he blew assignments on long gains. So maybe the guy he was covering didn't have a big game, but he was responsible for, for some big gains. And it was the type of stuff that really plagued him all year with the, uh, the mental breakdowns and the coverage breakdowns. So, I mean, if you're, if you're getting yanked, if you're getting benched, not benched, but he got his you know, role reduced, and then you're getting benched during games, it's hard for me to say that, that was part of the dramatic turnaround a guy had. So, um, so again, trust me, I'm obviously not uh, super optimistic. I, mean, I know he's a rookie, and I know rookie corners struggle, but I'd feel a little better if it was, you know, he struggled, but you hear he's doing everything right behind the scenes. But uh, that's just not the impression I got. I think he uh, wasn't in the playbook as much as he needed to be. I don't think he worked as hard as he needed to work. So maybe the light did turn on a little bit at the end of the year because, again, I know he did have a good game, uh, you know, down at Philly. But to me, I just I don't I don't I didn't see much to suggest that he's gonna have this dramatic turnaround. So then you enter Joe Judge, who is gonna be a all business, and B he has no allegiance to these guys. He didn't draft them. He wasn't here for them. 
So if he doesn't see what he wants to see from Deandre Baker, what's going to stop him from, you know, plugging Sam Beal or Corey Ballantyne or, you know, whoever uh, over him. And there's nothing in, in my opinion. So, and I also think Joe Judge is a guy who's going to probably make some examples early on. So again, if Baker's attitude hasn't changed, uh, I don't know that his play is going to be so significantly better that they're going to have just no choice but to keep him on the field. So I think his, his attitude is really what's probably going to uh, set the table for that leash. And, you know, I'm obviously not in the virtual meetings. You know, it's who knows? I mean, maybe he's plugged in and taking notes and, and all that stuff with no idea. Um, but I definitely think that's a guy to watch because, you know, every new coach sort of, you know, has some favorites and has some guys that are not as high on. And, and again, it's they have no allegiance to these guys. So uh, I think he enters training camp as the starter. Uh, off uh, opposite James Bradbury, but I, I don't think that position is in any way locked in. And if he gets off to another slow start or if he even just in practice and camps, he doesn't impress judge. Uh, I don't think that that leash will be very long at all. So I think that's uh, it's, it's interesting to me that people kind of said like, you know, the, the cornerback spots are set. I mean, they've invested a lot of the cornerback spots. I think Bradbury is going to be a solid pro, but just, in, just using first round picks. I mean, first round picks don't always work out and the giants uh, can certainly speak to that from some of their recent first round picks. So, uh, I am. I think the jury's very much out on on uh, on Baker, and to continue the pun, I think Judge will uh, will make his verdict there. Cause I, I it does not feel like DeAndre Baker is a Joe Judge type of guy. Now maybe uh, Baker will see the light this offseason and come back a totally different guy, and you know I'll have to eat my words. Uh, but I can only go based on what I've seen to date. And again, just does not feel like a guy that is, is going to be um, what Judge is looking for. So uh, I think the leash could be you know potentially very short there. Yeah, I think you hope um, as a Giants fan that Baker realizes that, hey, I didn't I didn't exactly light the world on fire as a rookie, but now I have a new coaching staff to impress. It's a clean slate. Um, none of that negativity needs to go over, and, and maybe it's kind of a new DeAndre Baker, and, and we'll certainly see, or it'll go the other way. But um, I think that's one of those things we talked about earlier, like regardless of what the record is this season, there's certain positions you want to see progress at. And DeAndre Baker is a guy that you want to find out for sure if he's a part of this team's future or if he's not. All right, this has been good stuff, Dan. Great answers to uh, to the questions and a run through the schedule for the Giants here for 2020. Hopefully that schedule gets started on time. Hopefully this team can get to training camp on time and all of that. But obviously a lot of question marks still up in the air. Uh, while we're waiting for those games to resume, the lead continues to give you an inside look on some of the top stories in sports. Last week, they discussed Miles Garrett's trip to Tanzania following the notorious helmet hit on Mason Rudolph. Plus, Korean baseball is returning and the impact of Michael Jordan's shoe revolution. Of course, the last dance, a big story around sports right now. That's the lead with Kavitha Davidson and Anders Kelto right here at The Athletic. And if you have friends who need that subscription to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash the New York football podcast. You can save 40% off a one-year subscription to The Athletic. That's going to do it for this edition of the New York football podcast. Thanks for tuning in.